The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 10, Enshrining Human Rights and Obligations in a People's Constitution. In 2004, the Government of the Australian Capital Territory passed the ACT Human Rights Act and the Government of Victoria followed suit in 2006 with the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act. The latter legislation was achieved through a well-run consultation process which resulted in a charter which now protects 20 main rights considered to be the most important to an open and free democracy. These rights were recognition and equality before the law, the right to life, protection from torture and cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment, freedom from forced work, freedom of movement, privacy and reputation, freedom of thought, conscience, religion and belief, freedom of expression, peaceful assembly and freedom of association, protection of families and children, taking part in public life, cultural rights, property rights, rights to liberty and security of person, humane treatment when deprived of liberty, rights of children in the criminal process, fair hearing, rights in criminal proceedings, the right not to be tried or punished more than once, and retrospective criminal laws. In the main, these rights were adapted from the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, but at the time, one key right under that covenant was qualified in the Act and another was omitted because it was deemed in the consultation process that these two rights did not match the contemporary views of the Victorian people. The qualified right was the right to life. It was modified by means of a savings provision to accommodate differences of belief held at the time by Victorians about abortion. The provision has since worked successfully to ensure that rights to abortion can be legislated as they have been in Victoria. The omitted right in the Victorian Act was the central right under the Covenant, the right to self-determination. This was omitted because, like the issue of abortion, it attracted strong views both for and against in the consultation process. The committee that oversaw the consultation process in Victoria back in 2006 did not recommend that the suite of rights in the other main human rights treaty, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, should be included in a new charter at that time, even though the committee found that the distinction between these civil and political freedoms can be arbitrary and even non-existent. In the main, this was because, quote, Overall, 41% of submissions argued for the inclusion of some or all of the economic, social and cultural rights, while 95% argued for the inclusion of civil and political rights, unquote. Accordingly, the Victorian Act did not extend rights relating to matters such as food, education, housing and health to Victorians, and it did not extend more specific rights for women, children, persons with disabilities and Indigenous people. It might be reasonably assumed that with the passage of time since 2006, a higher proportion of Australians 
would be supportive of the inclusion of economic, social and cultural rights in a charter, especially after the experience of privation during the COVID-19 pandemic and also after the experience of neoliberalism, which has resulted in significant growth in economic inequality in Australia, as well as growth in hunger, poverty and homelessness, falls in educational standards, long periods of unnecessarily high unemployment and underemployment, and a decline in the accessibility of health care. In the 2020s, Australians are less likely to take economic, social and cultural rights for granted than they were in 2006. Many are also likely to be more aware of the contractionary effects that neoliberal austerity projects have on the economy and the devastating effects on the environment that arise from diversion of government funds away from public services towards private businesses that act inconsistently with the public interest, such as fossil fuel businesses and banks. This is very likely to have had an impact on the consciousness of Australians, such as to suggest that they have an even more immediate need of economic, social and cultural rights than they do of political rights. Some Australians may hesitate about economic rights if they labour under the assumption that the nation cannot afford them. In short, if they labour under the assumption that a sovereign monetary nation like Australia, with probably more resource wealth per capita than can be dreamed of by most nations, cannot afford a high standard of living, education and health care for everyone. But for a country like Australia, the economic reality is that the sky is the limit. As a sovereign monetary power fully capable of creating our own money supply, organising resources, human and natural, and consumption into a fully sustainable regenerative economy and achieving ongoing full productive employment at stable prices, Wealth is not the limiting factor for our quality of life. The limiting factor is simply a political one. In Australia, until such time as climate change drastically affects our productive capacity, especially in food production, it is not the case that we can only do it if we can afford it. Instead, the Keynesian view of the economic, social and cultural capacity of advanced wealthy nations is far more likely to apply. As the renowned economist, John Maynard Keynes put it in 1942. Let us not submit to the vile doctrine of the 19th century that every enterprise must justify itself in pounds, shillings and pence of cash income. Why should we not add in every substantial city the dignity of an ancient university or a European capital, an ample theatre, a concert hall, a dance hall, a gallery, cafes and so forth, Assuredly, we can afford this and so much more. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. We are immeasurably richer than our predecessors. Is it not evident that some sophistry, some fallacy, governs our collective action if we are forced to be so much meaner than they in the embellishments of life? Unquote. And in the 2020s, after the pandemic and neoliberalism, it is fully evident that Australian governments have the financial capacity to fund whatever is essential in services and investments for our well-being and security, although politically it still suits some to propound the sophistry and fallacy that they don't. 
The pandemic has taught many Australians, such as those calling for more fiscal stimulus and government involvement in the economy, that this financial capacity is fully available to the nation and morally it is right to use it. As the eminent economic and political historian Adam Tooze stated in September 2021, quote, The double-edged lesson that 2020 taught us is about our capacities for collective action. We have huge capacities for crisis fighting. We spent trillions on giant fiscal programs to put our economies on life support. We backed them up with huge central bank activism. Financial markets were stabilised. Crash programs of vaccine development produced a suite of vaccines that, as of this week, have allowed 5.2 billion doses to be distributed worldwide, providing 39% of the world's population with at least one dose. Vaccines that many consider to be impossible as recently as the spring of 2020. We can, as one of my favourite quotes from Keynes says, pay for this and much more. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. But the question is in the doing. Think of everything we have not done. The opportunities gone begging. The discovery of our financial freedom robs us of excuses. This is the hard political edge of the related schools of post-Keynesianism, functional finance and modern monetary theory. If we fail to do something, we should not blame lack of money. Unquote. The upshot of this is that Australians will only have themselves to blame if they continue to let governments off the hook in their obligations to us. These obligations are the fundamental means by which governments must deliver and protect our fundamental rights. Australian governments have attempted to deny the rights of Australians and their obligations to us for decades, but it is now apparent that this plainly abstemious mindset a mindset which may be even more destructive than the three I cited above, if only because it deeply embeds inequality, need not be the mindset for the future. In fact, the mindset that we can't afford a decent life for everyone can be shuffled off fairly easily if Australians can become attuned to the fact that universal human rights treaties, to which we are a signatory, have already spelled out all the rights we need and all the obligations governments need to observe in order to ensure our rights. In the early part of the 2000s decade, it seemed likely, based on the consultation for the Victorian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities Act, that a majority of Australians might not have felt the need for economic, social and cultural rights. But times have changed, and it is much more likely in the 2020s that Australians would question why they should not be given, or indeed give themselves, full access to every right in the covenants our parliaments have signed and or ratified. It should be an easy offer to make and take, especially since we have seen that wealth and affordability is not a barrier. As such, why should we deny ourselves rights that other nations have? This opens up the possibility of a relatively simple option for enshrining the full array of human rights available under international law in an Australian People's Constitution. Chapter 6, Part 11 An Option for Enshrining Human Rights and Obligations in an Australian People's Constitution The full array of human rights that are available already in international treaties 
can be enshrined in the Australian Constitution in a single stroke. There are no legal barriers to this. We can simply choose to incorporate any international human rights covenant, convention, declaration, protocol or treaty into the Constitution, either into the core of the document or as a schedule or in both places if necessary. That parliaments have not yet done this, even though they have ratified most of the core human rights treaties, is indicative of a mindset which says human rights are the fiat of governments rather than an inalienable, natural, universal entitlement. But if we consider a proposition that it is not politicians, but we the people, who are truly entitled to confer rights on ourselves and equally on all members of the human family in our country, and to take them away from ourselves again equally, if need be, then everything changes in the way we are able to organise our right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Suddenly, we the people are the sovereign deciders on rights, and parliaments must desist from withholding them, as they have done for so many decades. They must also desist from their refusal to comply with their obligations to the Australian people under those treaties. This option of a straightforward transference of all the rights, responsibilities and government obligations in each signed human rights treaty and other human rights instruments if desired, directly into the Constitution, would reverse the way the current permission system works in our society and political legal arrangements to grant freedoms and to take them away again when it is demonstrably in the public interest to do so. The reversal would work simply as follows. We would replace one prospect with another. That is, we would replace what I will call prospect one with what I will call prospect two. Prospect one is the current prospect for attaining human rights, in which Australians must wait for the permission of parliaments to enshrine their rights, either in the constitution or just in legislation, probably in a piecemeal approach where we are likely at best to be granted rights selectively and the government is likely to be exonerated from its obligations to us. This prospect would be replaced with prospect two. This reverses the current prospect. In the reversal, the human rights conferred in any treaty or instrument signed by Australia are automatically incorporated into the constitution, even before ratification by the parliament. And the government must argue for permission from the people to remove a human right in law and or be exonerated from obligations under such treaties. Such permission must be sought from us by a referendum. If the first prospect is retained, the government will be able, as it is now, to withhold and even delete rights and obligations at its will possibly even to the point of denying and abusing all rights and obligations in the treaties. It will be able to enlarge on all the denials of rights that have been legislated since 2001. But in the second prospect, it is the people and only the people who will be able to delete or add rights and obligations in law at their will. The first prospect starts with a blank slate and lets the elected decide what might be allowed into law. The second prospect starts with the full menu of possible rights and obligations, taking them as a given, because they are inherent, 
and then lets the electors delete what they truly don't want or need on the proviso that if they delete a right, they must delete it for everyone. And if they delete an obligation, the deletion will not adversely impact any particular group compared to others. In effect, invocation of Prospect 2 would transfer ratification powers on human rights away from parliaments and to the people. It would give the people the first and last word on their rights. Prospect 2 is a process that is entirely consistent with the concept that rights are universal and indivisible, the natural entitlement of all humans from birth. And it has the added advantage of allowing Australians to sign off on which rights and obligations may be deleted, if any, in the public interest and in line with whatever national values they may have adopted. And by this reversal of process, we can far more efficiently assure ourselves that rights will at last be conferred on all Australians in line with their cultural preferences and values. After the passage of more than 70 years since Australia signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Australians might actually get the rights that successive federal governments have thus far refused to allow them. And we might get to keep them, because in Prospect 2, we can also efficiently safeguard ourselves from the denial of or assaults on our liberty that Australian governments have so successfully prosecuted since 2001 through, one, their amendments of legislation that have enabled human rights abuses, two, their refusal to legislate human rights per se, three, their refusal to withdraw reservations on human rights treaties, and four, their refusal to enter agreements on terms consistent with their obligations to Australians in these treaties. For example, their refusal to commit to the Paris Agreement on terms which would be consistent with rights and obligations to protect the health and well-being of Australians. Prospect 2 is a practicable solution to the problem of human rights abuses that have arisen from political manipulation and denial of the need for human rights in Australia. It is the option for constitutional enshrinement of human rights that should fall naturally into the hands of any nation in which the sovereign will is located in the people themselves, not in the government or parliament or a monarch, and which has also resolved, in accordance with that will, to stipulate its values. It is the option fitted for any nation ready and willing to exercise the fundamental right that underpins all the human rights treaties and declarations, the right to self-determination. Of course, governments are frightened of conferring rights to self-determination on their populations, even though they have agreed in the covenants that self-determination, the right of all people to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development, is essential to any process for conferring universal rights. Both autocratic and democratic governments are frightened of any such transfer of power. Therefore, in all likelihood, it will be protested that there are logistical and legal hurdles in the current constitution that Australians will face in invoking this option for the first time. These might be expected to arise from the fact that the current constitution does not allow referendums unless the parliament approves the wording of the question that is to be put to the people. This, however, is not a logistical or legal hurdle. It is simply a political one. And specifically, it is a political hurdle that, in accordance with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, 
the parliaments of Australia are not legally entitled to, at least under international law. The constitutional barrier that allows parliaments to stand between Australians and their human rights by refusing to allow the people to control the process that triggers their own referendums and designs the questions that may be put is fully at odds with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This, of course, presents Australians with a conundrum. How to bring on a referendum that they are entitled to, in all good governance, but are likely to be prevented from having by their parliaments? How do we bring on a referendum to approve the wording of the amendment necessary to enable insertion of human rights treaties directly into the Constitution, as per the intention in Prospect 2? To even begin to think about it, we need to shuffle off the mind-forge manacles that ban the people from having a say in their own governance and determining their sovereign will. Fortunately, while the Constitution does make that difficult in legal process, it doesn't make it impossible to introduce the option of a citizens-initiated referendum. If anything, in this particular case of enshrining human rights, it will be considerably easier with Prospect 2 to surmount both political and logistical hurdles than it would be to attempt to enshrine human rights in the Constitution or in legislation on a piecemeal basis, bearing in mind the complexity of explanation that would be required in that prospect, Prospect 1, about which rights and obligations should be included or excluded. The proof of this is that Australia has been living with Prospect 1 since 1945, and we still have no human rights in Commonwealth law. It might be expected that this situation could pertain forever if we opt to stay stuck within it. Still, this is a tragedy we can easily avoid. Once we shift our mindset away from the notion that only elected parliaments can bestow rights on Australians, dripping them into and out of legislation one by one, a la Prospect 1, and toward a prospect that puts Australians fully in charge of an efficient process to bestow rights on themselves and others equally, enshrining them in the Constitution until such time as we the people say otherwise, it should become obvious that Prospect 2 is entirely consistent, not just with democracy, but with the spirit of the current Constitution itself. The spirit of the Constitution is that it can only be amended and altered by the people. If that is so and it is so, then Prospect 2 is as straightforward as it is overdue. Prospect 1, on the other hand, is nothing more and nothing less than what tyrannical governments will attempt to maintain for as long as possible. But it is likely that its moment is over in Australia. Seventy years of denial of rights by Australian governments and their refusal to accept their obligations to the people are enough. As the results of polling show, COVID-19 has put paid to the patience of Australians in relation to denial of rights, and it has unmasked the entirely unnecessary and destructive capacity of neoliberal austerity in which governments refuse to observe their obligations to provide all Australians with the full measure of those rights and the quality of life that would come from them. This makes the 2020s the moment for seizure of human rights for Australians by Australians. Preparatory to that, the early 2020s is the moment to open discussion of the risks and benefits of invoking constitutional reform, which will enable Australians to confer human rights equally on each other, 
to safeguard those rights for all and to bind governments to their obligations in relation to those rights. In support of that discussion, the following section outlines how there is little, if any, risk in such a reform and how the benefits far outweigh any risk.